This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to note that in our second segment today, we have an interview with a journalistic legend. That would be Jim Lehrer, the executive director and anchor for The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, seen on PBS. Jim Lehrer is in Sacramento to speak as part of the California Lecture Series. That'll be at 7.30 p.m. at the Crest Theater. Mr. Lair is not just a newsman, he's also a rather prolific author, and he's got a new book out. We'll be talking to him about reporting and novels, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Let's begin the show as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is the 2nd of April. It was on April 2nd in 1513 that the Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon set foot on the Florida coast near present-day St. Augustine. He claimed the peninsula for Spain. Ponce de Leon was reportedly looking for the Fountain of Youth. He did not find it, but that has not stopped uh, millions of retirees from the East Coast for continuing to look for it, apparently. On this date in 1796, a forged Shakespearean play, Vert Vortigern and Rowena, flopped in London, helping expose its author, William Henry Ireland, as a fraud. This month, incidentally, marks the birthday of the author William Shakespeare, better known as Edward de Vere. That guy from Stratford-on-Avon, he was born this month, too. We'll be talking about that and about a new painting, reputedly, of uh, Shakespeare taken during his lifetime with author Mark Anderson uh, a little bit uh, later this month. It was on April 2nd in 1865 in the climax of the American Civil War. Union forces under Ulysses S. Grant overran Confederate trenches defending the Virginia cities of Petersburg and the capital of Richmond. By nightfall, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government had fled, and the city of Richmond was ablaze. By the way, I have somewhere in my possession a newspaper from a couple days after that event, which in a curious example of, of spin described how the Confederate authorities said this was actually a blessing in disguise because now they were free to move from place to place. I'll see if I can't uh, dig that that out for next week's show. It was on April 2nd in 1889 that the American scientist Charles M. Hall patented an inexpensive process for the extraction of aluminum from its ore. Aluminum, or as it's known to the British, aluminium, has become a ubiquitous part of all of our lives. And to that we have to thank... Charles M. Hall. On this date in 1917, suffragette and pacifist Jeanette Rankin became the first woman ever elected to the United States Congress, taking her seat in the Capitol as a representative from Montana. Congresswoman Rankin has the distinction, I believe, of being the only person in the U.S. Congress to have voted against the declarations of war in World War I and also in World War II. On April 2nd of 1943, John Maunchley, a University of Pennsylvania physicist, proposed to build a computer to calculate ballistic missile firing tables. The result, delivered three years later, was a machine called ENIAC. It was the world's first electronic computer. It's sad to think the first use of an electronic computer was to make missiles land more accurately. It's a red-letter day for science today. It was on April 2nd of 1953. 
that Francis Crick and James Watson published the first description of the double helix structure of DNA in the journal Nature. I understand the paper was the model of succinctness occupying one page. And finally, on April 2nd in 1982, Argentine troops invaded the Falkland Islands, quickly overcoming a small garrison of British Marines. This triggered a war with Great Britain. The corrupt Argentine government was calculating that Great Britain would not bother to defend uh, the Falkland Islands, which are located 300 miles off the southern tip of Argentina. But they'd been in Great Britain's possession since 1833, and Maggie Thatcher sent the fleet down. So in the end, this failed to distract the Argentine uh, population from the woes of their economy being mismanaged by their corrupt generals and uh, got a lot of people killed. And by the way, this is a good subject not to bring up with your Argentine friends. Nothing seems to convince them that their territorial claims on the Islas Malvinas is kind of bogus. Our quote of the day comes from Robert Frost, who once said, The reason worry kills more people than work is that more people worry than work. Our quip of the day comes from actor Jim Backus, best known perhaps as Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island, as well as the cartoon voice of Mr. Magoo. See if I can't do this one in the voice of Thurston Howell III. Many a man owes his success to his first wife and his second wife to his success. Lovey, I'm just kidding. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this... Now, I must say, Gilligan's Island was probably the, the lamest show in the history of television, with the possible exception of the Beverly Hillbillies. But it did have one good line that I ever saw. That was when Mrs. Howell said, I've never seen Thurston so upset. Why, the only time I've ever seen, seen him this angry was when they voted to admit a Democrat at the country club. Our joke of the day comes from Jay Leno, who said recently, Looking back at his presidential run this week, John McCain said he got a lot of votes because of Sarah Palin. And weirdly enough, that's the same thing President Obama said. And our bonus quip comes from rival David Letterman, who apparently had actor Joaquin Phoenix on the show recently and witnessed the actor speaking incoherently and appearing dazed, which caused Letterman to remark, Joaquin... I'm sorry you couldn't be here tonight. Our stat of the day is the fact that here in California, former Assemblywoman Sharon Runner is changing jobs. $128,109 a year appointment to the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board to $128,109 a year post on the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board. You know, I'd like to let the governor of this state know that I am available to appear on a board for a salary of $128,109 a year. My only question is, do I actually have to do anything? All right, let's cut to the good, the bad, and the ugly. It apparently was a good week last week for trial lawyers when it was revealed that a Monterey County jury has ordered the state of California to pay $8.6 million to a motorcyclist who was severely injured when he struck six wild boars on a state highway. 
Yes, the jury ruled that the state was responsible for Adam Rogers' injuries because officials knew that wild pigs regularly crossed a stretch of Highway 1 south of the Carmel River. They were creating a dangerous situation, but the state did nothing to address it. See, now, I thought everyone who ever drove in rural areas knows that wildlife sometimes can be found on the highway. But I guess not. And apparently it was a bad week last week for feminism. After a new poll found that 25% of young women would rather win first prize on America's next top model than the Nobel Peace Prize. Apparently in the poll, half also admitted they'd marry an ugly man if he were rich. And it was evidently an ugly week last week for the backlash from Prop 8 when it was revealed that gay bars in Chicago are now banning straight women's bachelorette parties. Women have made gay bars a popular choice for such parties because they know that the male patrons won't hit on them while they celebrate and ogle nearly naked male dancers. But in the wake of California passing a gay marriage ban, some patrons have become uncomfortable with women, quote, flaunting, unquote, their rights to marry. Watching them celebrate is such a slap in the face, said Gino Zacharias, owner of a gay bar named Cocktail. Yes, and speaking of acting like a baby, we got quite a, uh, quite a laugh out of a letter to the Sacramento Bee from, from Rahul Ranade, who commented, as did we on last week's program, about uh, <laughs> the article about the fellow who didn't like life in Costa Rica and moved home. Wrote Rahul, while my initial reaction was incredulity at the bee giving space to this gas, I think the bee's point was to uncover his hypocrisy, and I appreciate the gesture. I share the author's political views about wars and militarization, but his rather long list of complaints about the way things work in Costa Rica makes me think he's just a whiner who will complain no matter where he is. And we're happy to note uh, that other readers uh, agreed with our stand on that, uh, that editorial in the B about, uh, about how a uh, peripheral canal will help uh, the ailing Delta to recover. Wrote uh, Lovell Ashbaugh from Davis, Don Zia and Jeffrey Neitlinger could not have written a more self-serving article. As directors of water agencies, they're biased in favor of moving water south. There is no broad, expanding consensus on the need for a canal. That's fantasy. There is a building consensus on the need to restore the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, and if we adhere to business as usual, the Delta will certainly fail. Zia and Neitlinger view the Delta as a water pipe, not as one of the most important and fragile ecosystems in the state. Their water agencies have contracted to move more water south than nature provides. That path is unsustainable, and diverting more water from the Delta will not restore it. Don't listen to their drumbeat for a peripheral canal, and be very wary of those who say there's a consensus on the need for a canal. It just isn't so. Well said, Lowell. Well said. And by the way, we continue to be stymied somewhat in our investigative report as to what percentage of the water they put into the California water system gets wasted heading south. So far, we're being told, oh, that's a very, very tough thing to calculate. Well, I suppose that's true, but I think there's a lot of really smart people over there in the various water agencies uh, in downtown Sacramento, 
And I think you guys should know what that is. And if uh, to date you've some, uh, somehow, and I don't believe this, but <laughs> I'm, I'm getting word that, well, we just don't know. If that's true, if you guys don't know how, much, how many gallons you got to put in to get X number of gallons out, well, then it's high time you sat down and figured it out. We also have to address why all these people with water on the brains can't seem to get the idea that if we cover the canal, uh, we can stop the evaporation to a large degree. So if you out there, dear listener, have some insight into this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And I should remind you when I go off like this, which I do on a regular basis, that the opinions that you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. They do not also necessarily represent the viewpoints of the Boston Red Sox or the government of Luxembourg. They're just our opinions. It's a great thing that we're able to present them in a free forum like this. And it might be a good point to remind you that our annual pledge drive is coming up later this month, and we do depend on your support, dear listener, to be able to bring you the kind of programming that you expect on this station. I know these are tough economic times, but we've had to spend a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to do what we can to kind of get this country back on the tracks which thankfully we now appear at last to be. So please do what you can when our pledge drive comes up. And we've been rather skeptical on this program about the idea of a flying car, with pretty good reason, we think. But by avoiding the pitfall of trying to develop a whole new technology, some smart guys at MIT have sort of come up with one. Apparently three years ago, a bunch of uh, MIT-trained aeronautical engineers set out to make uh, a vehicle that you could drive on the highway and then fly off with when you wanted to. The result was a car that can, can be converted into an airplane. The two-seated Terrafugia Transition, <laughs> There's, they need to work on their marketing uh, for the name, I think. But the Terrafugia, I guess it's Terrafugia Transition, is able to fit into an ordinary driveway, but has retractable wings that can be extended in less than 30 seconds. Apparently last week, it lifted off at New York's Plattsburgh International Airport for a 37-second flight. The Terrafugia, which is Latin for escape from land, is capable of cruising up to 450 miles at 115 miles an hour. Its builders hope to sell it to qualified pilots for about $200,000. Let's just hope those wings you can pop out in 30 seconds are as sturdy as they need to be. There's a lot of good news out there. We probably should try to focus on some of that. Uh, Here's an item. Federal court has ordered the Food and Drug Administration to loosen its rules for the sale of Plan B emergency contraception to women 18 and older in order the pills should be made available to 17-year-olds without a prescription. The court said the FDA had used political considerations, delays, and implausible justifications to restrict access to the drug, which can prevent conception up to 72 hours after intercourse. We've been dealing with this issue on the show over the years, and this is, this is, this is, some, you know, this is some welcome news. Some conservative groups expressed concern that wider availability would promote sexual promiscuity. Luckily, as time goes on, these morons are having less of an influence on public policy. I'd like to cite an editorial by Anna Quindlin in Newsweek, titled Let's Talk About Sex, adding Congress loves abstinence-only programs so much it has thrown big bucks at them. The public, it's got better ideas. 
noted Anna, Congress has poured $1.5 billion into what is essentially anti-sex ed abstinence-only programs despite the following facts. One, they don't work. A study conducted for the Bush Department of Health and Human Services showed that teenagers who took abstinence-only classes were just as likely to have sex as those who didn't. Two, they're actually counterproductive. Other studies show that adolescents in abstinence-only programs were less likely to use contraception, perhaps because these programs emphasize only the failure rates of even the best methods. And three, since everybody understands this, a growing number of states are turning down federal funds for abstinence-only education. And speaking of jackasses, there really is no competition for this week's Jackass of the Week. The hands-down winner of Radio Parallax's Jackass of the Week Award this week is Cal Thomas. The crotchety and generally ignorant columnist for for Tribune Media noted last week that the so-called science of climate change has many critics. Said Cal in the editorial, There's a growing body of opinion that global warming is a fraud perpetrated by liberal politicians and their scientific acolytes who want more control over our lives. Cal Thomas apparently plucked this growing body of opinion from thin air. Cal, who's apparently sleuthed out this commie plot, noted that uh, none of these new laws and regulations are going to be implemented will be preceded by debate and they'll be imposed on us by fundamentalist politicians and scientists who've swallowed the Kool-Aid and declared global warming as fact. End of discussion. He then recommends a treasure trove of information that debunks the science of global warming at www.globalwarminghoax.com. I hope that some of you listeners will actually go to that site and report back what you find to us. We'll probably have to take a look ourselves. Although, truthfully, don't like to waste a lot of time looking at things about how, you know, the Holocaust is a hoax. And in this case, global warming is a hoax. Along with, I presume, Darwinism and the fact that, you know, that the Earth uh, goes around the sun. Although it is very clever the way he's turning around uh, the idea of fundamentalist religious people controlling science in this country and now blaming fundamentalist religious people in science. And now pointing to fundamentalist scientists. Anyway, uh, one more uh, uh, article from the Quirky File. Apparently, while visiting Angola last week, tens of thousands of Angola's Catholics lined the streets of the capital for a blessing from Pope Benedict XVI, who urged the country's faithful to reach out and convert people who believe in witchcraft. In today's Angola, he said, at a mass in Luanda, Catholics should offer the message of Christ to the many who live in the fear of spirits, of evil powers, by whom they feel threatened. Presumably they need to switch over to the Catholic Church's more enlightened view of the world, wherein evil is embodied by Lucifer. Well, let's balance that off with the fact that, uh, at least in California, the bees are back in town. Noted The Economist magazine in some rather breathless prose. At the end of February, the orchards of California's Central Valley are dusted with pink and white blossoms as millions of almond trees make their annual bid for reproduction. The delicate flowers attract pollinators, mostly honeybees, to visit and collect nectar and pollen. By offering fly-through hospitality, the trees win the prize of a brush with a pollen-covered bee and the chance of cross-pollination with another tree. 
Well, as you may or may not be aware, in the last few years there's been a crash in the honeybee population. This apparently is multifactorial, but uh, for whatever reason, the bees seem to be making a comeback, and that's good news for almond farmers and all of us. Also, an article in Science News about uh, how much pollination goes on from uh, solitary bees and how you can help, uh, help those types of bees find habitat in your yard, but uh, I can't put my hands on it right now, so I'll have to wait till, uh, wait till I can find it. Anyway, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and when we come back, we're going to speak with... Uh, uh, really, a legend of American television journalism. That would be Jim Lehrer. Stay tuned for that. 